This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we'll study an empty tomb, Jesus appears to Mary, sending the apostles, Thomas confesses Jesus, and Jesus and the 153 fish. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. We find it in the Old Testament. It is taken for granted in many ways, New Testament as well. Polygamy, which is, of course, back on our radar because there's a serious move to legalize polygamy after the legalization of same-sex marriage. Meneva said this was going to happen, and of course, it did happen. So how do you deal with the argument that the Old Testament patriarchs, most of them, not all of them, most of them had more than one wife, and that should maybe eviscerate any argument against polygamy in our society today. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Friday afternoon, February the 28th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Dr. Christopher Mitchell, editor of the Concordia Commentary Series, will join us to talk about polygamy in the Bible. Then, it's This Week in Pop Christianity with Pastor Chris Rosebro. We're going to talk about Katie DeGraw and Casting Out Demons from Christians, and we'll round everything off on this Friday afternoon, playing Issues Etc. Soundbite of the Week with our listeners. We have four soundbites ready to go. We'll play the four soundbites after you've listened. You give us a call, one 623 my ie and your votes will decide which will be Issues Etc. Soundbite of the Week. Joining us to talk about marriage and polygamy in the Bible, Dr. Christopher Mitchell, Editor of the Concordia Commentary Series, author of the Concordia Commentary on Song of Songs. He has a PhD in Hebrew and Semitic Studies from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Mitchell, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Why is the topic of Old Testament or biblical polygamy relevant today? I wish it were not relevant. I wish that polygamy were just a historical topic of historical interest, but as most Christians know, polygamy is still quite relevant for our world today. Most Christians know that polygamy is sanctioned in the religion of Islam, which was started in the 7th century after Christ by Muhammad, who had a number of wives. Most Christians also know that polygamy historically has been sanctioned by the Mormon church. Joseph Smith actually styled himself as the American Mohammed, and he started his religion in the 19th century here in America, and he had a number of wives. Polygamy then went underground in the U.S., At least it's not been practiced openly for a long time. But just this week on Monday, the state of Utah started a legal process to decriminalize polygamy. So this would change it from being a felony to just being a misdemeanor, like getting a traffic ticket. 
I was surprised to see in the news that many of the proponents of this change to decriminalize polygamy were women who formerly had been wives in plural marriages. And they think that bringing it out into the open would be a good way of addressing this in the modern context. It's counterintuitive to me why they would want to decriminalize it, but that's what's going on. Also, more generally, I would say that we can expect more issues like polygamy to be relevant in our society today because we have moved away from the biblical morality that used to be taken for granted in this country and also in the Western world in general. So once you abandon the biblical model of an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman, you open a Pandora's box of all kinds of other aberrations and that then could include logically one man and several women. That would be what we would call polygyny, the technical term for one man with several wives, or one woman with several guys. That would technically be called polyandry. So once you abandon the biblical model for marriage, really there are no constraints for how far you want to go in perverting the biblical model. How would you describe biblical marriage customs in the Old Testament? The Old Testament records quite a variety of different marriage customs. So it's impossible to say that there was one set or fixed custom of marriage that every couple had to go through. Part of the reason, I think, is because the Old Testament is a selective history. It doesn't just record everything that happened. It records specific historical events that are vital for God's plan of salvation culminating in Jesus Christ. But just to describe some of the variety. For example, Adam and Eve were simply brought together and they were husband and wife by God's design. You have other monogamous couples recorded in scripture. For example, Isaac and Rebecca, as far as we know, that was just one lifelong union of the two of them. For that marriage, this is recorded in Genesis 24, an elaborate series of preparations took place. Abraham sent a servant who contacted Rebecca's family and there was a long process of negotiation, discussion. Rebecca consented to be married there was an exchange of jewelry and so on. And then at the end of that long period of what I would call courtship, 
in the end, there's a very short narrative that Isaac took Rebecca into his tent and she became his wife. So a very <laughs> short conclusion with not even any indication of a marriage ceremony. There are a lot of other examples that we can look at in the scriptures. For example, the book of Esther portrays her becoming part of a harem, and that involved quite a long process of preparation. I'm personally quite interested in the Song of Songs, and the Song of Songs portrays what seems to be an elaborate wedding procession in chapter 3. The book as a whole also portrays a long period of courtship during which they are betrothed, they meaning Solomon and the Shulamite, so they're betrothed. And this betrothal is not the same as our modern idea of dating. So a betrothal was a firm commitment to be married in the future. We can also see this in the New Testament in the narrative of Joseph and Mary. When Joseph decided at first to end the relationship, he had to divorce Mary. He couldn't just say, all right, forget it. I'm not going to phone you anymore. It was a formal process by which two people promised that they would be married. Those are just a few of the many biblical examples. Someone might get the impression, reading what you said there is a selective, a very, very selective history in the, in the Old Testament, that polygamy was the norm for everybody. Is that true? Scripture does not support that view that polygamy was the norm. First of all, we have creation where there is one man and one woman. There is no record of polygamy in the first generation of descendants of Adam and Eve. The first time that polygamy shows up in the Bible is actually Genesis 4, and I think this is significant. So Lamech, who was a son of Cain, and Cain was the first murderer, the first fratricide, in Scripture. So Lamech comes from a, a bad lineage or a lineage of obviously sinful people. And Lamech was a bigamist. That is, he had two wives, according to Genesis 4. And that passage also reveals that he's quite a vicious and vindictive Person. He talks about avenging himself sevenfold. So right from the start, the first time polygamy shows up in the Bible, it's in an evil context of people committing gross sins, including murder. There are also other narratives that show that polygamy was not the norm or the ideal. For example, Jacob and his wives, he ends up with 
two wives, Leah and Rachel, and then two concubines, the slaves of his two wives. But Jacob intended simply to marry Rachel, the second daughter. But he was tricked into marrying the older daughter, Leah, and he had to work for seven years before marrying Leah. Then he had to work for another seven years to marry Rachel. And by the way, that's another model of the kinds of marriage customs that could have been in the Old Testament period, like a period of courtship lasting a number of years before the marriage. So it was not Jacob's intent to have a polygamous relationship. He just wanted Rachel. But he got tricked into marrying Leah, and then subsequently the two concubines, the servants of his two wives, became involved as a matter of having children. So polygamy became a means to procreate, to have lots of children when there was natural infertility. Dr. Christopher Mitchell is our guest. He's editor of the Concordia Commentary Series. We're talking about marriage and polygamy in the Bible. We'll talk a little bit about something called leveret marriage after this. If there was a pill I could give you that would make you immortal, how much would you pay for it? Pastor Jonathan Fisk, author of The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Without Flesh. Because you see, that's exactly what we have. And it's priceless, but it's also free. So why is it that nobody's coming to our churches to get this immortality? I mean, we can say that it's all their fault, or maybe there's something about it that we've forgotten. Learn more and purchase Without Flesh at issuesetc.org. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. Concordia University Chicago is a distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're committed to increasing LCMS faculty and staff members. Hi, this is Dr. Russell Don, president of Concordia University Chicago. If you're a member of our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregation, please consider joining our staff. And if you have a terminal degree, please consider joining our faculty. Send us an email at human.resources at Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. facebook.com slash lutheracademy.
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Friday afternoon, we're talking about marriage and polygamy in the Bible. Dr. Christopher Mitchell is our guest. He has a PhD in Hebrew and Semitic Studies from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Mitchell, speak briefly, if you would, about leveret marriage. What is it, and how does it relate to the subject of polygamy? Yeah, leveret marriage is an interesting custom. There's a prescription for it in the Torah that if a brother dies without any children, that then it's the duty of another brother to marry his wife and raise up children for him. And this was seen as a way to provide children for a man who otherwise would not have any. This also would provide some protection for the widow in that she would not be alone in life without any source of support. Her, her sons would be expected to provide for her. So yeah, in the New Testament, the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection used this as a hypothetical test case to try to get Jesus to paint him into a corner so that he would have to admit that the resurrection didn't make any sense. But Jesus exploded their plan. He didn't allow himself to fall into their trap. He rather said that in the life of the world to come, there will be no marrying or being given in marriage. But yes, so that was an Old Testament custom and I would say that is one of many Old Testament customs that could fall under the category of Romans 3, I believe it's verse 25, how God in his forbearance overlooked lots of sins during the Old Testament era in light of the coming of Christ who made the full and perfect atonement for the sins of the whole world. So leveret marriage was something regulated in the Old Testament. I would put it in the same category as divorce in the Old Testament, which was allowed. And Jesus explains in Matthew 19 that God allowed that because of the hardness of the people's hearts. It was not his will from the beginning. And likewise, regarding Leveret marriage, certainly it's God's good and gracious will that people be able to have children procreate, as he says in Genesis 1, you know, God blesses the first man and woman and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's only on account of the fall into sin that we have these problems. So now there can be infertility as a result of our sinful condition. Not that infertility is God's punishment for any particular sins we've committed, but we are fallen creatures. Our bodies don't work as God originally intended them to work. And so that's why we can have problems like infertility. There's also the interesting book of Ruth, which some interpreters connect to leveret marriage. I don't think it's exactly the same as leveret marriage. You have a situation there where 
the husband of Naomi dies, and then she has two sons, both of whom who die, and then the two daughters-in-law are left without children, and one returns to her pagan way of life, but Ruth goes along with Naomi to return to Israel, and then Boaz subsequently marries Ruth, and Ruth then becomes an ancestress of King David, and then also an ancestress of Jesus Christ. So the Gospel of Matthew makes that clear in his genealogy of Jesus. You have several surprising women who show up in the genealogy of Christ. And well, first of all, it's just a surprise that any women are included. That would be a sign of God's gracious inclusion of all people, male and female alike, in his kingdom. And that you have some foreign women. You have Rahab, Tamar is in there. You have Ruth the Moabitess as a direct ancestress of Jesus Christ. So is it safe to say just briefly on leveret marriage and those variations that we see elsewhere in Scripture that those things certainly had the potential to create a polygamous situation, one that even may have been provided for by the civil law of ancient Israel. Yes, I think that's certainly true, that God's provision of leveret marriage would probably lead to a polygamous situation in that the brother who is still alive normally would have been married already. And also regarding the book of Ruth, many commentators assume that it's likely that Boaz was married already and took Ruth as an additional wife, given that Boaz was what we might say middle-aged and well-established and financially well-off. He probably would have been married already and may have had other children already. So that highlights his generosity and gracious spirit in marrying Ruth and accepting responsibility to provide for her and then for her children. Dr. Christopher Mitchell is our guest. We're talking about marriage and polygamy in the Bible. So how should we rightly understand the polygamy of some of those Old Testament patriarchs? We'll get his answer to that question next. We need people who are well-educated enough to know what the Constitution means, what it says, how its principles work. Dr. Robert George of Princeton University talking about his presentation on the Constitution and civic virtue at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We need people who are willing to fight for those principles, to call out politicians, whether they're liberal or conservative, whether they are Democratic or Republican, when they transgress against the Constitution. We need a people who are fit for liberty and fit for the rule of law under a Constitution like ours, a Republican polity like ours, established under the Constitution. So I'm really going to be talking about civic virtue and its relationship to constitutional structures and principles. 
you can meet and hear Dr. Robert George at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. Attendance is limited to 500. Learn more and register at issuesetc.org. Sanctifying your commute with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Holy Cross, Evangelical Lutheran Church, Albany, Oregon, is a mid-Willamette Valley LCMS congregation where the liturgy lives and God's people worship as one with sound biblical doctrine, weekly communion, and a clear confession of Christ crucified for the sin of the world. Please join us at 2515 Queen Avenue Southeast or visit our website at www.holycrosslutheranalbany.org. Do you long for a church that celebrates the divine service with reverence and joy, but without the unbiblical baggage imposed by a supposedly infallible hierarchy? Do you long for a church that confesses a divinely instituted office of the holy ministry for the giving of the Lord's gifts to his people and yet values and lifts high the priesthood of all believers? Welcome to the Lutheran Church. We're what you've been looking for. Find an historic, authentic church near you on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking marriage and polygamy in the Bible with Dr. Christopher Mitchell, editor of the Concordia Commentary series, author of the Concordia Commentary on Song of Songs. He also has a PhD in Hebrew and Semitic studies from the University of Wisconsin. So then, Dr. Mitchell, how should we rightly understand the polygamy of some of these Old Testament patriarchs? Sure. Yeah, Abraham received the promise of blessing in Genesis 12, he was going to be the father of many nations, which is fulfilled by the inclusion of Gentiles in the church. He was promised the seed through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. And the book of Galatians interprets the seed as Jesus Christ. So a key figure in the Old Testament, we would really say Abraham starts the formation of Israel as the people of God, the covenant people in the Old Testament. Now, Abraham shows that believers are simul justus et peccator, saint and sinner at the same time. So in terms of the promise, Abraham should have simply trusted that God would fulfill this promise to give him a descendant and seed, but instead of just trusting God's word, he felt he needed to take things into his own hand, so to speak. He wanted to do something. This is the opinio legis on the human heart. Sinful, fallen people naturally assume that there's something we have to do to be saved or to contribute to God's plan of salvation. So this is synergism or Pelagianism, that we have some contribution we have to make. So Abraham just got tired of waiting, got tired of simply trusting in the word of God. And his wife, Sarah, was part of this. Sarah gave him Hagar, 
who was Sarah's servant, and Abraham and Hagar had Ishmael, but God made clear that that was not the promised seed. Ishmael and Hagar were sent away, and God reinforced to Abraham that he simply needed to trust that God would provide a true descendant from Abraham and Sarah, and that God eventually did in the person of Isaac. I mentioned Jacob earlier and how his intent was one marriage to Rachel, and by trickery and plenty of human sins, he ended up with four wives. But I think the, the important thing to keep in mind in the history of the patriarchs is that God is able to work out his plan for our salvation despite all of our sins, despite our misconceptions of what salvation is, and despite our reservations to simply trust that salvation is by grace alone, people try to insert themselves into salvation and do things thinking that they're going to help God out and help God accomplish his plan. So again, you have the picture of the patriarchs as saints and sinners at the same time. And here also, I would say we need to keep in mind a hermeneutical principle that scripture can be descriptive without necessarily being prescriptive. So a lot of biblical narratives, especially in the Old Testament, record what happened and what people did, but we shouldn't assume that those records of what people did are normative for us. Uh, they, they don't necessarily prescribe for us how we are to live. You can see in the patriarchal narratives an implicit condemnation of polygamy, and this is implied, it's not stated in so many words, but if you just watch what happened with the patriarchs, in every case, polygamy caused problems and brought problems to the patriarchs themselves, and then that in turn caused problems for other people. So you see for the case of Abraham, the suffering that Hagar and then Ishmael had to endure after they were cast out of the house. And there was also fighting between Sarah and Hagar before Hagar was cast out. Jacob had all kinds of problems. If you read the narratives when he was in the process of fathering his 12 sons by these four wives, well, two wives and two concubines. There's all kinds of infighting between the wives and the concubines. And Jacob himself seems to be kind of exhausted. And in some ways, he becomes a pawn of his wives and concubines in that there's basically a contest to see among them which of them can have the most sons they assume that the more sons they have, the better they will be regarded by Jacob. 
And so the whole setup of polygamy leads to lots of fighting and heartache and problems in the relationships. How does the Old Testament deal with the extreme polygamy of King Solomon? Yes, that is the most extreme example. Solomon, according to 1 Kings 11, ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. So, and a, and a distinction in the Old Testament between a wife and a concubine is that normally the children of a wife would receive a share of the inheritance. A child of a concubine was at a legal disadvantage and not, might not be considered a full heir. In the case of Jacob, all 12 of his sons became tribes in the nation of Israel and they all shared in the inheritance. But yes, getting back to Solomon, there are two things you can say. First of all, the way he ended up in 1 Kings 11 was an extreme example not only of polygamy but also of idolatry and apostasy. So he married a number of foreign wives as part of the process of making political alliances with other countries. That was a common practice. You know, if you marry the daughter of the king of a different country, that solidifies a political alliance. And these foreign wives led him astray by bringing their worship of their false gods into his household. And Solomon certainly is to blame for caving into this. He accommodated many of them. He allowed shrines to be built to these foreign false gods. But that is a very clear example of how polygamy led to the worst problem of all, and that is apostasy, a lack of faith in the one true God and the worship of false gods. So that's the negative side of Solomon. There also is a positive side of Solomon that we don't see in First Kings, but we do see it in the book of Ecclesiastes, which appears to indicate that later in life Solomon did repent of his idolatry. And so many interpreters infer that Solomon did die as a believer and was saved in the end. And that is also consistent with the Song of Songs. Now, Ecclesiastes was probably written toward the end of Solomon's life, and that shows his final repentance. The Song of Songs seems to have been written early in his reign. There's a reference in Song 6, verses 8 and 9, to Solomon having 60 wives that, that, who would be queens and 80 concubines. So this would be early in his reign, given his eventual number of 700 wives and 300 concubines. But the striking thing in the song in that chapter is that Solomon has 
no regard for any of the others, just the one Shulamite. And so she is his one. The text calls, in the, in the text, he repeatedly calls her, you know, my one, the one whom I love. So the Song of Songs ironically portrays the ideal of monogamy and an exclusive love in which both the husband and the wife are devoted to each other singularly without sharing that intimate love with anybody else. Does the polygamy of the Old Testament, as you carefully pointed out, it is described and not proscribed, does it justify in any sense modern-day polygamy or polyamory or the other variations thereof? I would say no. Again, the Old Testament as a historical record of what sinful people did, people who were saints and sinners at the same time, it's not a normative, uh, put it this way, the, the historical records of the sins that people committed are not normative guides for how God's people should live today. One curious example that shows up in our Lutheran confessions that I think is worth mentioning is that in the Apology, this is Article 23 regarding the marriage of pastors, the Apology actually cites the patriarchs Abraham and Jacob as polygamists who were nevertheless righteous by faith. And the Apology is making the argument that you know, marriage itself is not a sinful institution. Pastors should feel free to marriage. It's a, marriage is a God-pleasing institution. So it's, it's just interesting that the confessions would cite those two patriarchs and state that they were polygamists. Nevertheless, insofar as they were exclusively devoted to their wife, or wives and did not lust after other women who are not their wives, in that respect, they are models for us of the singular love and devotion that believers have for Jesus Christ and then also for our spouse if we're married. We were discussing polygamy in the Bible with Dr. Christopher Mitchell of the Concordia Commentary Series. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. The March issue of the Lutheran Witness Magazine contains columns by Issues Etc. guests Matt Harrison, Scott Murray, Gene Edward Veith, and Nathan Jastrom. The theme is Fasting and Temptation. The Lutheran Witness is available in print and online. Find out more at cph.org witness. Interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. The Lutheran Witness Magazine, cph.org witness. When we come back, Dr. Mitchell will make the case that the one man, one woman definition of marriage is God's intent for marriage for Old Testament, New Testament, and today. week on the word of the lord endures forever we'll study an empty tomb jesus appears to mary sending the apostles 
Thomas confesses Jesus and Jesus and the 153 fish. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Remember when education was about the fundamental skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic? And about reading great literature and studying history to give our kids a model for what it is to be a good person? Memoria Press's Classical Christian Curriculum offers that very model for your homeschool. Get $5 off your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. For more information, go to memoriapress.com. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, teaches St. Paul. But what about those who cannot hear? Can they be saved? The February issue of The Lutheran Witness illuminates this topic and others, including hearing the gospel while singing the faith, how to listen to sermons, and proclaiming the gospel in foreign lands. Come, learn how the church confesses the word in words. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe today. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. cph.org witness. Did you know that for over 40 years, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries with low-cost loans and resources? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Because of faithful investors like you, we've been able to help church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations. To learn how you can get involved, call 800-843-8233. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Christopher Mitchell is our guest as we look at marriage and polygamy in the Bible. He's editor of the Concordia Commentary Series. Dr. Mitchell, make the case for us then that the one man, one woman definition of marriage is in fact God's intention for marriage from the beginning, all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and for us today. Well, thanks. That's the key question here. And I think it's quite easy on the basis of Scripture to say that the ideal portrayed throughout the scriptures is the lifelong exclusive union of one man and one woman. Now, there certainly is a vocation of singlehood that is in the scripture, so I can come back to that, but I would say right off the bat that this should not be interpreted to mean that the only way for a Christian to live is to be married. But you can start at the beginning, begin at the beginning with Genesis, and God originally created one woman for the one man. God, I suppose, could have created any other number of people had he intended polygamy or polyandry or polygyny to be an acceptable relationship, but instead, no, he didn't do that. He created the one man, Adam, and then from his side, the one woman, Eve. You have in Genesis 2 an elaboration of marriage, and 
the statement that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. A key passage. Now fast forwarding to the New Testament, Jesus cites that in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. And then also the Apostle Paul cites that in Ephesians 5. What St. Paul does is fascinating to me. So that chapter, Ephesians 5, is about real Christian husbands and wives and how we are to love one another and husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then toward the end of that chapter, Paul quotes from Genesis 2, and then he says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking of Christ in the church. So one of our wonderful Lutheran commentators, Dr. Tom Winger, interpreted this to mean that already from the beginning, already in Genesis, God had in mind the union of Christ with his church. And God created human marriage as an institution that would serve as a sign, a prophetic sign, a prefiguration of Christ's relationship with the church. When you bring Christ and the church into the picture, then you definitely have to operate with a monogamous model. So there is only the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom of the church. There are no other saviors. So if you operate with a, say, a polyandry model, that would imply a multiplicity of saviors by analogy, connecting the human institution to the divine institution. And of course, we don't have that. There is only the one Savior, Jesus Christ, and he is the one bridegroom of the church. Likewise, there is only the one church. We confess in the creeds that we believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. So there are not separate peoples of God. That way of thinking might lead to a kind of universalism as if you could have different peoples of gods with different religions and you know with different schemes of salvation and that's not the case the body of christ is one we think of ephesians 4 one lord one faith one baptism and one church so when you connect the human institution of marriage with the divine economy of salvation of Jesus Christ and his church, then that excludes all kinds of polygamous or polyandrous or polygynous relationships. Also, this is an eschatological theme. So not only do you have this in creation, and then you have it in redemption, there are plenty of other passages in the 
Gospels and in the Epistles that develop this theme. It's also eschatological. So when you look at Revelation, the last book of the biblical canon, and you look at the last part of Revelation, which speaks of the return of Christ, the consummation of the plan of salvation, and the eternal state. There, too, you have to operate with this monogamous view. Throughout the New Testament era, the church is called to be the bride of Christ. We are to be vigilant. So the wedding has not yet taken place. We're betrothed. Christ has promised himself to us and is with us through his word and sacraments. And we, by baptism and by hearing the word and through celebrating the Lord's Supper, we are already joined to Christ, but we have to remain faithful to him until the wedding takes place. There is still the possibility that if we are unfaithful, we could exclude ourselves from the final wedding feast. That's the imagery of Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And only there, toward the end of Scripture, does the church move from being the bride of Christ to actually being the wife of the Lamb. So in Revelation 21.9, the church triumphant. Now that's after the return of Christ and the church is in glory, and that's when the wedding takes place, and the church is called the wife or gene of the Lamb. And then you also have similar language in Revelation 19.7, where the church becomes the wife. Dr. Mitchell, somebody says to you, look, I'm troubled by the Old Testament polygamy. I see polygamy on the horizon in our society. I don't know how to respond to people who say there was Old Testament polygamy, and so polygamy should at least be allowed or permitted by Christians today. How would you respond with about 30 seconds? The best response is to say, keep your focus on Jesus Christ. Don't let all of the sins and terrible things that are going wrong in our world take your focus off Christ. So Christ is our one Savior, and think of what he has done. He came into the world. He was born incarnate as a man. He abstained from all sins. He's the model of singular devotion to God and to God's word, God's plan for our salvation. And think of what he has done in calling the church into being. By his grace and forgiveness, the church is called the virgin bride of Christ. We are called to be sexually pure to reflect that imputed righteousness we have from Jesus Christ. And sexual sins are among the worst sorts of sins because they defile our bodies as well as our hearts and minds. And we are members of Christ's body. So that is something we should bear in mind 
every day in all of our conduct, whatever I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing as a member of the body of Christ. And so I need to be holy and pure as my Lord is holy and pure and as he calls his children to be. And let me mention finally that the vocation of singlehood is also a God-pleasing vocation. The scriptures talk about the blessings of being single and being devoted only to Christ without having to worry about the cares of being married. And so I hope the things that I've said don't take away from that biblical vocation too. So just for example, the prophet Jeremiah was called to be single because of the distress of his age. And 1 Corinthians 7 talks about, uh, and St. Paul talks about the blessings of being single because the form of this world is passing away. And marriage is an institution for this earthly life. But as this world passes away, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which there will no longer be marriage, but rather we will simply have the eschatological union of Christ and his bride forever. Finally, Dr. Mitchell, you're the executive editor of the Concordia Commentary Series. Tell us about these resources for lay people and for pastors. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yes, this is the Concordia Commentary Series has been going on for a long time. We officially started it in 1992. We have 40 authors working away. We have 37 commentaries in print. We still have a long way to go. The purpose of this series, simply put, is to get the great Lutheran exegetical tradition into writing. So we've had wonderful professors teaching at our educational institutions for decades, but their teaching largely was confined to their classrooms. So we're asking our best Bible scholars in confessional Lutheran circles, and that means not just the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, but our sister denominations around the world in Canada, Australia, and so on, to put their finest exegetical theology in writing. And then this will preserve this knowledge of Scripture for future generations and also allow it to be disseminated around the world. Already, Fifty years ago, when the idea was first floated to have a commentary series, William Arndt, a famous New Testament scholar, said that one of the immediate blessings of simply starting a series is that this focuses the attention of the church on the Holy Scriptures. So it's been a wonderful vocation for me personally. I have the privilege of spending most of my time each day working through the glorious commentaries based on the original Hebrew and Greek texts by the best Lutheran Bible scholars that we have on the planet. 
Learn more about the Concordia Commentary Series on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Dr. Christopher Mitchell is editor of the Concordia Commentary Series, author of the Concordia Commentary on the Song of Songs, and he has a Ph.D. in Hebrew and Semitic Studies from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Mitchell, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Pastor Chris Rosebro is with us on the other side of the break. It's This Week in Pop Christianity today. We're going to talk about Katie DeGraw and casting out demons from Christians. Pastor Rosebro hosts the daily internet talk show called Fighting for the Faith. Then we'll play Issues Etc. Soundbite of the Week. Our soundbites are ready. You can vote in advance at our Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash issues etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.